1: Hello, I'm Laura Landon. Welcome to the New Books Network Journalism Podcast to mark 150 years of The Nation magazine. The Nation began publishing in July 1865. It's the oldest weekly magazine in the United States, a flagship of the political and cultural left. To mark its 150th anniversary, the nation's archivist, Richard Kreitner, is publishing The Almanac, a daily blog on the magazine's website about what happened on that day in history and how the nation covered it. Today on our podcast, Richard Kreitner talks about the week of April 26th to May 2nd, a week that includes the suicide of Adolf Hitler in 1945, Nixon's invasion of Cambodia in 1970, and the release of a classic American movie. We interviewed Richard Kreitner from the nation's New York offices via Skype. The interviewer is Bruce Wark.
0: So, Richard Kreitner, this week in history and how the nation covered it, um, what do you begin with? Well, the uh, April 26th entry is about the catastrophic
2: nuclear accident at Chernobyl
0: in the old uh, Soviet Union. And the nation ran an editorial on that, didn't it? That's correct, Um,
2: arguing that that hopefully it would be a wake-up call around the world to sort of ease away from, from nuclear power.
0: How consistent was the nation in opposing nuclear power? As far
2: as I know, fairly consistent. I mean, we've obviously been around for 150 years, so we were there when, when the U.S. first dropped the atomic bombs um, in Japan, and the nation opposed that um, very strenuously and kind of argued that this new problem required basically a world government in order to, um, to, to avoid nuclear proliferation. Um, which is obviously still a topic in the news this very week. Um, as far as civilian nuclear power goes, the nation published a long feature by a journalist named McKinley Olson in 1974 called The Hot River Valley, which was about um, nuclear power in Pennsylvania. And so ever since then, I think um, there's another, I think we might have done it earlier this year, actually, an Almanac entry on Three, uh, three Mile Island in Pennsylvania, Um, So every time this happens, and then Fukushima, of course, four years ago, uh, the nation has been fairly consistently against um, nuclear power.
0: The time for the healing of the wounds has come. We have at last achieved our political emancipation. Well, that was a clip of Nelson Mandela, who won the election in 1994 as president of South Africa, that was the day, April twenty seventh, 1994, that South Africa held its first free election after apartheid. What did the Nation editorial have to say about that?
2: The Nation was, was saying it was a great moment for South Africa. It, the Nation had been against and, um, apartheid and been covering the issue since 1948, when the Nationalists won the election on an apartheid platform and had reviewed Nelson Mandela's memoir in 1966, Um, And the playwright Arthur Miller had interviewed Mandela for the nation um, or interviewed him uh, later that year after he won the presidential election. The editorial says the soul of South Africa's transition to democracy is to be found in those voters, many of them aged and infirm, who refused to budge when polling stations failed to open. They've been waiting all their lives for this moment. Nothing would deter them from marking the X that signified their passage to full citizenship in the land of their birth. The mood countrywide was peaceful, festive, and in some areas jubilant, but more often serious and appropriately solemn. From illiterate rural women in destitute homelands to Johannesburg's well-heeled bourgeoisie, from edgy young township comrades to stolid Afrikaner farmers, there was an overwhelming sense of the historic moment. It was as if all South Africans, black, white, and coloured alike, were voting for the first time in their lives.
1: You're listening to a New Books Network journalism podcast. Richard Kreitner, special assistant to the publisher of The Nation, talks about The Almanac, his daily blog to mark the magazine's 150 years of continuous publishing. His entry for April 28th goes back to 1970, when President Richard Nixon announced the invasion of Cambodia.
0: In cooperation with the armed forces of South Vietnam, attacks are being launched this week to clean out major enemy sanctuaries on the Cambodian-Vietnam border. A major responsibility for the ground operations is being assumed by South Vietnamese forces. Well, that was Richard Nixon announcing the 1970, April 28, 1970, invasion of Cambodia. And The Nation ran a story, Richard Kreitner, about that called Cambodia, Nixon's Trap. It
2: was by the uh, historian and sociologist Franz Sherman, and uh, it's it's a very interesting one to read. I'll, I'll read a couple lines from it. The lies that have been coming out of official quarters in Washington since the Cambodia coup appear to be frantic attempts to preserve the illusion of presidential command and control over foreign policy. Mr. Nixon's rapidly alternating moods show weakness where there should be strength. The weakness is exacerbated by his inability to choose between two diametrically opposed thrusts of his political makeup. One, a proclivity for reactionary conservatism, which marked the beginnings of his political career, and the other, a desire expressed in his campaign and in the first year of office to bring us all together. He cannot be a president of peace and of war at the same time. Johnson tried that by separating the two. He waged war abroad and preached peace at home. It worked for a while because the foreign and home fronts were not yet tightly linked. Today, they're inextricably enmeshed, morally on the campuses and materially in the stock market. Nixon must make a move in one direction or another. Whichever way he moves, he will have a great fight on his hands. If he does not move, whatever power he has left will slip away. The decisive confrontation between the constitutionalists who want peace and the militarists
0: who want war is close at hand. The next day, April 29, 1992, was a significant day uh, for the U.S. in its history and for the nation. What happened then? That was the day that four LAPD
2: officers who had been videotaped beating Rodney King in Los Angeles were acquitted and and that prompted uh, explosive riots in Los Angeles
0: and and what did uh, Mike Davis wrote a piece for the nation and what did that say sure well it's
2: a it's a very disturbing piece I, I think to read um, to read right now when we're hearing news about uh, you know every other day we hear news about uh, police brutality against against Black Americans, and then on the off days we hear about police impunity for that brutality. So I'll just read um, Mike Davis's essay in the Nation in June 1992. Uh, it was called "In L.A. Burning All Illusions." The balance of grievances in the community is complex. Rodney King is the symbol that links unleashed police racism in Los Angeles to the crisis of Black life everywhere, from Las Vegas to Toronto. Indeed, it is becoming clear that the King case may be almost as much of a watershed in American history as Dred Scott, a test of the very meaning of the citizenship for which African Americans have struggled for 400 years.
0: I forget what the Dred Scott case said. Oh, sure, that was about um, uh,
2: the Fugitive Slave Law, saying that it was actually a crime to assist fugitive slaves, and it was a crime to not help um, federal agents recapture fugitive slaves, and it it essentially said that black people in the United States were not citizens, and could never be citizens.
0: Now, for the next uh, event, we're going all the way back to 1945, and it reminds me that... um The nation has been around for so long. Um, What was it like for you to go through all these dates and the coverage and uh, ranging over many, many decades uh, to see how the nation had performed?
2: Sure. Well, it's been just an incomparable education, Um, everything from Reconstruction to the Gilded Age to the imperialism, the the Spanish-American War of the late 1890s, I mean, on and on. It has been just a, a huge education in history and culture and politics and everything. <laughs> um, it's, it's, been, it's been really great.
0: Now, April 30th, 1945, what happened there? And I see you had a very famous person writing for The Nation on that event. Sure. Well,
2: um, that was the day that uh, Adolf Hitler committed suicide in Berlin, um, about a week or so before the war in Europe ended in 1945, 70 years ago. Um, And on some days there are obvious selections, and on other days there are less obvious selections. Things were moving so fast in those days of late April and early May 1945 that The Nation, a weekly magazine, of course, um, couldn't tell a story day by day. So for this day, I I have an essay by Thomas Mann, the exiled German novelist who wrote for The Nation um, quite a few times in those years, especially in the 30s, about the... uh, about the uh, Spanish Civil War, for instance. And so this is an essay that Mann wrote for the nation. It was published May 12, 1945, so about two weeks after Hitler's suicide. Um, and it was titled "Address to the German People. And it was basically about the war guilt, which is a phrase from World War I, but um, about, about what had happened in Germany and what that meant for humanity, but, but especially um, what was most concerning Mann was to the German people themselves.
0: And uh, could you read a bit from it? Sure. The thick-walled
2: torture chamber that Hitlerism had made of Germany is broken open, and our disgrace is bared to the eyes of the world. Foreign commissions who have been shown these incredible scenes report home that the horrors they have seen exceed anything that men could imagine. It is our disgrace, German readers and listeners, for every German, everyone who speaks German, writes German, has lived as a German, is affected by this shameful exposure. It is not a small clique of criminals who are involved. Hundreds of thousands of a so-called German elite, men, youths, and brutish women, committed these misdeeds in morbid lust under the influence of the insane doctrines of National Socialism. Call it the dark potentialities of human nature in general that are revealed here, but remember that it was Germans, hundreds and thousands of them, who revealed these potentialities. The world shudders at the sight of Germany. Even the German who escaped in ample time from the realm of National Socialist leadership, who did not like to live in the vicinity of these abodes of abomination, did not like to go about his business in ostensible virtue and pretend to know nothing while the wind carried the stench of charred human flesh to his nostrils. Even this German is ashamed in the depths of his soul for the things that were possible in the land of his fathers and his masters. Power is lost, but power is not everything. It is not even the main thing. And German greatness was never a matter of power. It was once German, and maybe German again, to win respect and admiration by the human contribution, by the power of the sovereign spirit.
0: The words of Thomas Mann, the great German writer, on the death of uh, Adolf Hitler and, I suppose, the end of World War II. Our next uh, story uh, that you've selected, uh, Richard Kreitner, is uh, an entertainment story. And uh, it involves Orson Welles and one of the greatest movies ever released, Citizen Kane, released on this day, May 1st, 1941. And let's hear a bit from the trailer that uh, Orson Welles released to advertise that picture.
1: How do you do, ladies and gentlemen?
0: This is Orson Welles. I'm speaking for the Mercury Theater, and what follows is supposed to advertise our first motion picture. Citizen Kane is the title, and we hope it can correctly be called a coming attraction. It's certainly coming, coming to this theater, and I think our Mercury actors make it an attraction. Well, that was uh, uh, some sound from the trailer, sounding very dated uh, for Citizen Kane, released on this day, May 1st, 1941. And Richard Kreitner, you're doing the almanacs, day by day, what the nation covered and and these events. How did the nation uh, handle uh, Citizen Kane being released?
2: Sure, well, it was a review by our longtime uh, Hollywood correspondent, Anthony Bauer, previously of the New Statesman in England, and uh, this is his review. This excellent cinematic material, Wells has embellished with brilliant directorial, pictorial, and dramatic touches. He breaks, with the greatest effect, practically every photographic rule in the business, employing very few close-ups, playing whole scenes with the faces of the performers in shadow using lighting to enhance the dramatic value of the scene rather than the personal appearance of the actor. He is, in fact, one of the first Hollywood directors really to exploit the screen as a medium. And it is interesting to note that in doing this, he has used an entire cast with no previous screen experience. The picture has made a tremendous impression in Hollywood. Charlie Chaplin is reported to be prepared to back any venture that Wells may have in mind. Perhaps when the uproar has died down, it will be discovered that the film is not quite so good as it is considered now. But nevertheless, Hollywood will for a long time be in debt to Mr. Wells.
0: Yeah, very interesting. Eh? And Citizen Kane has stood up, hasn't it? I would say so. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And finally, Richard Kreitner, on, on this week that we're discussing, May 2nd, 1972, the death of J. Edgar Hoover. How did the nation cover that? Uh, I will will read to you a piece by Frank Donner, who was a
2: longtime Civil Liberties writer and and advocate with the ACLU, wrote an essay on Hoover's legacy about two years later. Uh, And this is my favorite line from that. Director Hoover was not only the nation's police chief. He filled a far more important post. He was its minister of internal security, an office of tremendous, if unacknowledged, power, which he held continuously in six administrations. And from this base, he organized a totalitarian-style political police force, developed a congressional and mass constituency that sheltered him from interference or control by his nominal superiors, and harassed and blackmailed critics and enemies. For more than three decades, a secret police force has spied into and kept records on the lives of Americans, without authority from either Congress or the executives.
0: Richard Greitner... Um That's interesting on J. Edgar Hoover dying. Let's look at the week as a whole. And um, when I look at the coverage of American stories that you have selected in the week of April 26th to May 2nd, I see a very critical stance from the nation. How would you describe it? I would describe it as, um, for one thing, telling
2: the truth not being ashamed to have a perspective and and, and questioning the, um, the conventional wisdom, the received story, questioning power always.
0: Thank you very much, Richard Kreitner. I'll talk to you next week. Great. Thank you so much.
1: been listening to a new books network podcast to mark the 150th anniversary of the nation magazine about how america's oldest magazine covered events during the week of april 26 to may 2nd join us again next week as the nation's archivist richard Kreitner, talks about how the nation covered notable events in the first week of may you can read richard Kreitner's blog the almanac on the nation's website at thenation.com